Welcome to ChemTalk. Thanks for tuning in. This week, we interviewed Dr. Dino Spagnoli, a lecturer and coordinator of first-year studies in chemistry at the University of Western Australia. Dr. Spagnoli spoke about his experiences as a research assistant at UC Berkeley in California, the process in which he developed his own app, what it was like working in the tobacco industry, and more. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Professor Spagnoli. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to get to meet you. Hello. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Yes. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you got your Master's of Chemistry with a year in Industry from the University of Kent, and you did your PhD in Computational Chemistry from the University of Bath. And currently you're an assistant professor slash coordinator of first year studies in chemistry at the University of Western Australia. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. So when you were a student and during your PhD, you actually were a postdoctoral research assistant at UC Berkeley. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience there and what you did? Yeah, so um, I went to Berkeley uh, for my first postdoc after my PhD. That was a a tremendous experience. Uh, First time I'd lived away from home. Uh, lived in a different country as well. So it was incredible to see um, a different culture and um, meet new people. Berkeley is an amazing place. It, it truly is. The Bay Area is just a fantastic place to live for a couple of years. The actual research I was doing was in, in computational chemistry. Um, and I joined a group of primarily experimentalists and they were interested in naturally forming nanoparticles. So these are nanoparticles, um, very, very small particles that naturally formed. And the particular one that I was interested in doing research on was on iron oxides. So there's a variety of different iron oxides. And we were looking at hematite, which is a Fe2O3 uh, of composition. And the reason we're interested in that is because we, they were looking at abandoned mine sites, primarily the experimentalist groups and seeing what the environmental impact was of these different mine sites. And so when a mine site gets abandoned, what can happen is that sometimes it's not treated properly or or contained properly. And you get a lot of exposure of various um, minerals that shouldn't be exposed to the air. And what happens is that after weathering and when they get introduced into the water systems, you get something known as acid mine drainage. So you get very, very low pHs occurring. And the byproduct of that is that you have a lot of um, iron oxides forming, uh, particularly on the nanoscale. So you get a lot of minerals such as uh, ferrihydrite and schwertmanite and some of the three plus iron oxides as well, such as hematite. And so I was, I was doing some computational chemistry, looking at modeling those on the atomistic scale and tried to understand the uh, reactivity that occurred on the surfaces of those. Um, because if you could understand that, then you could get a, a good idea of how they might interact in the environment. And so we looked at looking at particularly the water structure as well. So water, as you know, is a, is a liquid and has quite a, an undefined structure. But when you put it in contact with a surface, it can have quite a defined structure. And this has been seen experimentally as well. And so this affects um, absorption properties onto the surface because 
and iron has to absorb through that solution, through these different layers to get to the solid surface. So yeah, we're doing a, a lot of modeling of, of those different situations to see if we could provide a, a good understanding of what's happening to these particles in the environment. That's really awesome. And I also read one of your publications. It was about the study of single water absorption on low index surfaces of calcium silicate faces. Was this, mm -hmm. uh, was this research article based on your research after your postdoc? Again, it's related. So we were looking at different level of theory. So that, that was so the previous research was classical models known as a molecular dynamic. And the area of research that I went into later was looking at applying electrons to the models. So such as density functional theory, it's called. That particular research was looking at uh, particular materials that are used in cement production. And so Again, looking at surfaces and how they interact with uh, different um, other species, such as water. And the reason that's, that's important to look at was for the cement industry, because the cement industry, I think, accounts for about 10% of total CO2 emissions globally. So it's quite a significant industry. But cement is really, really important for um, infrastructure and for buildings. So... One of the processes that isn't widely understood is the hydration of that. Um, so putting water on that, so in the process of water absorbing on that. Um, and if you can understand that on an atomistic scale, then you can get an idea of trying to improve the efficiency of the process and therefore try to reduce the CO2 emissions that occur from, from that industry. So um, again, it was applying a computational model to try to understand the reactivity on the surface. Uh, but that was particular for the cement industry. And what type of work did you do in industry? I know you spent a year in industry also. Oh, a year in industry. That was, that was really interesting. That's just, um, yeah, a little bit different. So during my undergraduate studies, I got the opportunity to uh, spend a year in industry. So you do two years of your chemistry degree, then you try to find a placement in industry and then you do your final year of your degree when you come back. And so I was looking for places to work and you apply to all these industries. So I was interested in the pharmaceutical industry. I was interested like GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer and all other industries. Like I, even, I even tried to Getting, there was a, an R&D center that wanted chemistry students to look at biscuit production, of all things. But the one that I actually landed was, because it's a competitive process, right? You've got to go for interviews and apply properly uh, for their industry placement program, was actually British American Tobacco. So they're, they're a tobacco company. They make cigarettes. Um, but they've got a huge R&D center um, in Southampton in the south of England. Or at least they, they did do. I think it's still there. And so I spent a year in Southampton looking at tobacco and the particular parts of the R&D work I was looking at was looking at using gas chromatography, so GC, at um, looking at the water content in tobacco. So again, it's related to water. I think I've, I've stuck around water quite a lot in my my career. And that's important because when they do the, the production process of the tobacco, they need to 
clean it and wet it. And so we sampled the water content as it goes through the production to make sure it was at the correct level. So it's kind of a quality assurance, analytical chemistry kind of thing. We used gas chromatography to measure the water content. So you could, you could put your, used to put in a solvent and then um, put it through gas chromatography and you could, the signal came out where you knew water would be. Uh, but also we did a titration. So it's a Carl Fischer titration, which is a very complex reaction actually, um, but it involves the coordination of water with um, some iodine. So you get very black. When you get to the end point, it goes very black. And so you could, you could back calculate the water content from the amount of iodide solution that you add to the, to the mixture. So, yeah, so that was a, a part of analytical chemistry that I looked at. So that was a, particularly in the, the tobacco industry. I also looked at using GC to look at menthol because you get menthol cigarettes. I don't smoke, but apparently they're quite popular um, in Asia and um yeah, so again, it's looking at how much menthol you, you have in, in your cigarettes. So we'd measure that as well to make sure that everything was going okay. But it's a very interesting industry, the tobacco industry. And uh, they're doing a lot of, um, lot of R&D in the, the products and a lot of materials chemistry, a lot of analytical chemistry goes into to the tobacco industry, yeah. And so after your year in industry, you completed your undergraduate studies? Yes, after that, you went into academia. And would you say that you ever wanted to go into industry? Uh, so working in industry was very eye-opening. And I strongly suggest, uh, strongly recommend to, to undergraduate students to take that opportunity to do internships, to do um, a placement if, you're, if your program allows it um, in industry, because it really does give you a insight into what a big industry works as and spending a year there I did enjoy it but I felt it wasn't for me I felt that it, it was too big a company and the work I was doing was was quite quite small I found um, and I didn't really enjoy that that kind of um, big industry work plan. so it really did that then it changed my focus to to wanting to pursue a PhD after that because I thought okay I could go as a grad into a graduate position into an industry but you'd be doing a lot of routine analysis for, for a lot of your uh, work and doing actual research rather than routine analysis was something that I wanted to pursue. So it did open my eyes to wanting to, to pursue a PhD. But then I thought, if I've got a PhD, then I might be able to enter into industry at a slightly higher level. Um, but then I found the research to be uh, fascinating and, and very um, is what I wanted to do. And academia is probably one of the best places to, to do um, your independent research. So then it then I got thinking about what type of independent research I wanted to, to go into. After your PhD and now you're in academia now, you've also been to conferences at other prestigious yeah. universities, such as Cornell University. So would you say that this was just as good of an experience that you had as a research assistant at Berkeley or was there anything else you enjoyed in particular at these conferences? Yeah so conferences are very interesting and, and probably one of the 
benefits of being in academia. You get a lot of opportunity to go to, con- well, we used to, to travel to go to conferences and now a lot of conferences are, are online, um, which is good. Because um, you get to meet people, you get to uh, discuss interesting ideas with, uh, with other people you might not um, interact with regularly. Um, you do a lot of networking so and you build a lot of collaborations as well through that. So the, the conference scene, whether it's national or international, is a, is a great way to firstly get an insight into the latest research because there's a tremendous amount of papers being published each year. It's very hard to keep up with the latest research. But when you go to a big international conference, you see the really cutting edge research that is, that is taking place. And then in the um, coffee breaks and in the lunch breaks, you get to network with other scientists from around the world. So uh, they, they've been a really great experience. Um, hopefully once this pandemic is over, we get to travel um, a, bit, a little bit more to, to, to go to these conferences. One of the, the side effects of not being able to travel is that these, these online conferences have sprung up. And I think they're very important to continue because we should be uh, wary of our carbon footprint when we travel. And so when we get on a plane, that's, that's a huge carbon footprint for people traveling to international conferences. And people used to go like three, four times a year if they could afford it and they, they had the time. With now the online conferences and, and hybrid conferences popping up where you get a face-to-face and an online version, it means that people still get to understand that, that cutting-edge science, um, but they don't have to do the travel, which is, is a benefit in, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways. Speaking of virtual conferences, you actually organized one with your yeah. colleague right before the coronavirus pandemic hit in March That's of 2020. Right. So could you tell us a little bit about that? What initially sparked your interest in creating this virtual conference? Yeah, so as we've discussed, I I was involved in computational chemistry. And since I've been at University of Western Australia, um, I've really got interested in in chemistry education research. So looking at doing a lot of research and the scholarship of teaching and learning and applying best practices from from the research data into, into my teaching practice. And I'm particularly interested in the laboratory, providing a really great experience for students in the laboratory, but also try to improve their learning. And so there's a lot of research that can be done in that area. And so a colleague from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, Michael Seary, who's one of the leading voices and really great researcher in the chemical education research area, particularly in laboratory education, contacted me in June or July of 2019 um, and said, do you want to get together and try to organize a a online conference, one day symposium on chemistry laboratory education and the research that goes into that? And I I said, yeah, thank you for the invite. And we got together and we we brought in a a selection of speakers to to kick off this, this lecture. And then obviously 2020 happened and the uh, pandemic occurred. And um, it just so happened that we were probably one of the first online conferences to to take place. And the feedback from the participants was was overwhelming because 
We decided to do that conference around Easter time in 2020. So that was April. And that was probably the first six weeks that, that real the lockdown measures started to occur right. around the world. Um, and so everyone was just cooped up in their in their house working from home and they really missed that interaction with their colleagues and um, and and seeing people that they would have met at, at conferences and so we put on this and it was the the response was overwhelming we had over 200 registered people uh, which we never expected to get that many for a first time conference uh, particularly in chemical education and the, the speakers were great and there was really great dialogue between the participants and then slowly we we learned really on the fly how to put on a an online conference and since then all the major conferences like the american chemical society the royal society of chemistry have all put on these virtual conferences and there's there's a um, certain benefits as i've discussed before there's certain drawbacks that people do like to see other people in person and that interaction but there's ways around that and you just need to adapt to to that but um yeah that was a, that was a really great experience i was determined to try to get the the symposium going because i think it was very important for our community to keep those those important conversations that you need to between between colleagues going Right. And I've heard from my own teachers about how difficult it has been to adjust to this remote classroom setting. And so would you say that your pre-planned conference actually eased your transition into a remote classroom setting? Yeah, I, th I think so. It does certainly give you first-hand experience at how to use software such as Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams which we, we had to learn to adapt to use very, very quickly to provide in an education for our students. Uh, I was very concerned with the fact that students weren't going to get those peer-to-peer -peer interactions. And so while you're, you're running the conference, you, you see what works well with getting people to engage online, uh, like having the chats uh, function working, setting up breakout rooms so you can have small group chats uh, going on uh, simultaneously. Inviting participants and inviting students to put their cameras on and if they want to. I mean, it's got to be their choice if they decide to because you're really peering. That's a different dynamic when you're teaching as well. You're, you're actually peering into a private space for the students. So you can't demand that the, the camera gets turned on because you're peering into maybe their bedroom or somewhere they don't want their their teacher to to look into so those type of dynamics need to be uh, looked at very carefully when you're when you're putting on an online class and making sure there's that chance for for students to to learn off each other is is a really difficult and, and challenging thing to do online as well and so there's there's various techniques that you need to do to encourage and facilitate those peer-to-peer -peer learnings which are vitally important for students to learn right like even from my experience it's very quiet in breakout rooms especially and even when we're learning the participation among my peers is very minimal and i think that yes. really limits like how much we're learning how much we're engaging with each other 
Exactly. Yeah. And people and learn from the body language, right? So if you, you can currently see about the top of my shoulders and sometimes you see my hands flick up, but when you're seeing someone in person teach, you're seeing all their gestures and those gestures and those cues are, are so important for students to, to um, spark something in their brain that that means that, that this is important. And so um, as, a, as a teacher and as a lecturer, we've really had to um, emphasize our lecture material differently and, and the content differently, really emphasizing which part of the PowerPoint slide we want students to, to, to look at. Um, because that, those, those um, natural gestures that you get from looking at a person when they pre present aren't there in the virtual world. Right. And just going to backtrack to your research a little bit. I've also yeah. seen that you, you've also mentioned you have an interest in computational chemistry and you're also interested in augmented reality. In regard to which you actually created an app. And it's available on the Play Store and in the App Store. Could you tell us a little bit about what this app is and what the process was that you used to create it? Yeah, so um, this is this I think is a very exciting area of research and and development in education. I think this ties back to why I got interested in computational chemistry in particular because when I was a student and an undergrad, I found it very hard to visualize what the molecules were doing on the atomistic scale. So looking at those atoms and seeing how they collide and interact. And so during my final year of of undergraduate, um, one of the lecturers there uh, was a computational chemistry and he put in some of his animations that he had from his research to describe the reactivity of what was occurring for the reaction that he was trying to describe. And that really got me um, excited and, and really helped in my learning. Um, and it turns out that there is a Theoretic, and so therefore I, I decided to pursue um, research in computational chemistry because I, I found the visualization of that very engaging and um, helped me understand. And therefore I thought, well, then we could try to answer some really nice questions in, in the research field to and, and use models to do that. But actually there's actually a theoretical framework that underpins this learning. And this goes back to uh, one of the late great educators, uh, also from Scotland, Alec Johnstone. And he came up with uh, Johnstone's Triangle. I'm not sure if you're aware of Johnstone's Triangle. Do you come I'm across not. that? But you'll see it in your textbooks and you'll see th this being implemented. So what he said was that to truly understand chemistry for students and for everybody, we need to think in, in three different levels. And those levels are the uh, macroscopic. So that's when you do an experiment, you see the data and you see some color change. You see something physical in front of you that you could try to, to understand what's going on. We need to also think on the symbolic. You know, these are the, um, the symbols we use to describe a chemical reaction, such as an equation, um, all those symbolic um, parts of the of, of, of that that's in your, in your textbook and, and how you write down a chemical equation. The third part of that triangle is the microscopic or the atomistic. And that's thinking about how the atoms are actually bouncing off each other and trying to react, okay? 
And so if you can think at these three different levels at the same time, then you, you truly understand in the chemistry that's taking place. So for example, if you think about um, a metal cation, let's say we've got copper and it's got water molecules all around it, okay? So if you can visualize a, a single copper atom with all the molecules around it, those, those bent water molecules, you're thinking of the atomistic scale. And you can also write that down as a chemical equation, like a symbolic, you can write um, Cu and then in brackets, H2O and then close brackets and six to have the six water molecules around it. So that's a symbolic. The macroscopic is the blue color of your solution. So copper sulfate is blue because copper is interacting with the water molecules, okay? Now then if you pour an ammonia solution in there, what you'll find is that color will change from light blue to dark blue. And that's because um, ammonia is displacing the water molecules and interacting with the copper. And so you can write that down as a chemical equation, okay? But also you could think about those ammonia uh, molecules pushing away and, inter and competing with the water uh, molecules and displacing it and then forming that interaction. And that's what turns the solution a different color. And so what I thought was, wouldn't it be really nice if when you're doing a chemical reaction in the, in the laboratory, you could see, have, some, have your device pop up and turn on the app and have an augmented reality experience which describes what's happening at the atomistic scale to what you're seeing happening in your test tube. And so the, the molecules or the system that we decided to look at was the precipitation of DNA. And so this would work for, for any kind of DNA where you extract out. So you may have done the strawberry one where you extract yes. DNA from the strawberry. And so what do you yeah. do there? You get your strawberry, you mush it up in a bag, you may add some uh, salt and you may add some alcohol in there. Mm -hmm. And um, if you do that, you then get a layer of, and you can, you can, you can get the stringy DNA out, okay? Um, and so during the laboratory, our students do something very similar. They have our, um, our DNA in, in water solution. They then add, they put in a solution of ethanol and then they add salt to it. And then they see a little layer of, of DNA uh, come out of solution. And then what they do is they, they turn on the app and then they go through the experience of the app and the app will describe the structure of the DNA molecule on their, on their lab bench. So it's very close to, to what they've done. And then it'll describe why they've added the alcohol and why they've added the salt and, and what the interactions are between the molecules to form it to, to interact. And so this was to try to help students bridge that gap between what's happening in their test tube, which is the macroscopic viewpoint, and also the atomistic side of things. And so, yeah, it's just to try to, to help students. So my research has been involved with uh, providing um, a lot of technology enhanced learning to try to improve student learning in the laboratory. And um, I think augmented reality could be a really big area in this because we've all got mobile phones we've all got mobile phones that are stronger than the computers that i did my phd on right so they've got the computer power to do these visualizations really quite easily now the process we went through in developing that app 
was I, I'm, I'm lucky enough in our university, we have a VR and an AR specialist, a guy called Michael Ovens. And uh, he did all the tech side. He did all the uh, computer uh, programming side to develop the app. But development of apps is, are, are becoming easier and easier. And there's lots of um, drag and drop kind of software that you can do to develop your own app now. And what you, what you have to do is once you've got the idea in mind of what you want to cover, you need to, you need to storyboard it out. So you, it's like if you're doing any kind of presentation, you need to, to have the layout and, and um, it's a good idea to, to storyboard it so you know what goes where. And this, this decides what assets you need. So what kind of visualizations you need for each part of the story. And then it's just a, a process of, of going through a, um, a lot of iterations of trial and error and seeing what's working, um, what the tech is capable of doing. And then we went through a process of evaluation. So we did two iterations of it where we got feedback from the students to try to improve it. And there's various different models you can do in the design aspects. Um, there's something known as the technology acceptance model, which basically has a, a load of hypothesis linked to whether or not a piece of technology will be accepted by the user. And it's used a lot in marketing, but you can apply it for, for education by putting in whether or not. So basically it's very simple things such as if the user interface is easy to use, then it's gonna assist in student learning. If in the survey you get certain parts of the survey that students aren't interacting well with, then you know there's a barrier that you need to work on to try to improve the either the user interface or the visualization or where you put things in the, in the app uh, to try to make that an easy process for students to use and therefore can assist in their learning. So your app is sort of like a bridge between the students and the chemicals inside their test tubes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so all this research is definitely extraordinary and your job as a professor is also extraordinary, but I'm curious, do you prefer one over the other? Yeah, so I, I love teaching. It's what I, I really wanted to do. If I, if I wasn't lucky enough to be in, in academia, in the university sector, I probably would, would be a high school teacher. Um, I've always just wanted to teach. And what university teaching gives you is a, is a lot more freedom to teach in the way that you, you feel is suitable for your students. You kind of sometimes design your own curriculum as well. You're not stuck to a high school curriculum, which is very defined. And so it's, it's the, the teaching side of thing that, that really drives me um, and to want to, to go to work each day. And the reason for that is that I... I really get a huge amount of pleasure when students just seem to grasp a concept. You're explaining something to them and it's not quite working. And then you might need to, to, to change your style or change the way you say something or try to introduce a different technique you're teaching. And then you just see something click in their mind. And it's, it's like that uh, something has switched on and then, and then you see this understanding and you get them to explain back to you what you're trying to get across. And, and that for me is a very rewarding part of my work. I find it really, really uh, rewarding and it's, it's really what drives me. The research side of things, 
So I'm still actively involved in computational chemistry and in chemical education research. And with the augmented reality, you kind of blend the two together, which is really great. But in chemical education research, what I find really interesting is to research areas of the curriculum or areas of student learning that I'm actively teaching in. And that informs my practice. So I do a lot of reading in the literature to see what the other colleagues around the world are doing in their teaching, try to implement that, seeing if it works. If I see that there's a gap in the research, I I try to explore that gap and to try to publish in that area. Um, And so that that's I see it as a as a like kind of a circular notion where one is informing the other and then you you do something in the classroom and then you can put back into the research by by publishing it so um, that's very rewarding as well when you when you publish your your teaching practices and your research that has gone into underpinning what you do in the classroom and so you love being a teacher but is there anything that really initially sparked your interest in academia or is there a story behind your interest in chemistry in general oh chemistry in general so when i was in high school i was and i'm a bit embarrassed to say this i was at a, a crossroads so i i didn't know which which subjects to do so in the uk system when i went through the uk system Uh, We did something called A-levels, which are your last two years of high school before you go to university. And I had no idea what I I wanted to do. So I chose three subjects that I thought would be interesting. So there was ancient history, because I I find that fascinating, the Romans and the ancient Greeks. And they had a very good curriculum in uh, the British being, um, so the Romans colonizing the British. So that was very interesting. Uh, economics was another area that I found interesting. I really liked the teacher, so I decided to do that for my final two years. And then I had a choice. It was either chemistry or English. And I was told that in English, you had to read Great Expectations. And so I tried reading it during, my, during the summer, and I couldn't get into it. And I thought, oh, God, this book is so boring, and I hate it. So I, I decided to do chemistry. So that was really the only reason that I decided to pursue Uh, chemistry in in year 11 and 12 of the final two years and then during that those two years I got fascinated by what chemistry actually is because when previously we did a uh, general science curriculum so you, you don't really do chemistry classes you do chemistry biology and physics all merged in just what was known as science but in chemistry you found that I found that it really was the bridge between the things we've been learning in physics and the things we've been learning in biology. And you needed chemistry as that um, central point to, to, try to, und- to try and bridge the gap between the two. Also, I got very, very interested in the changes that occur. So chemistry is a science of change. And the way that you could manipulate reactions and how you can really put your influence on it to change what was going to happen was I found fascinating as well I've always been really interested in the minerals and rocks and so chemistry was would have been a great way to look into geology or geochemistry as well and the colors that you get that come off those rocks and minerals as well I found it fascinating 
And so I wanted to understand where those colors and what those rocks were, were made out of. And you needed chemistry for that. So I think that's what really sparked my interest. It was really a crossroads between whether I pursued English or chemistry. And it turned out that um, because I, I couldn't get into a particular book, I decided to do chemistry. And then um, once you got into what chemistry was about, I found it the science of change to be fascinating, the different colors that came off to be very engaging. And yeah, the experiments that we did during those two years were really fascinating as well. So was there anyone in particular who you looked up to as a student pursuing a career in chemistry? So this, this goes back to my undergraduate days. There was a professor called Professor Alan Chadwick, and uh, he's a funny guy. When we first walked into his class, me and uh, a friend of mine looked at each other and we just thought, yeah, we wanted to be taught by this guy because it was a stereotypical pr chemistry professor, very, very scruffy, like old guy, scraggy beard, like um, the clothes he wore, just stereotypical. Um, and then you got to, to know him and he, he had a love of uh, Manchester United, the football club, and I'm a big football fan as well, not that club, but a different club. And so you just get to know him as a person and um, you got interested in, in his way he taught and uh, he, was, he actually became my personal tutor as well. And so got to know him very, very well. And actually, when I was looking to do a PhD then, I was talking to him about several people I'd like to work for. And I came across um, a person from University of Bath called Steve Parker. And he, he turned around to me, and goes, ah, oh, Steve, I've known him for years. And it just happened. They've been friends for years. And so he got picked up the phone and um, made that arrangement for me to, to meet with Steve. And so that really helped. Um, and you find that when you're, when you're going through academia or any kind of a career path, it's really not what you know, it's who you know. And so if you can make those networks, those connections, it makes pursuing a career a lot easier. And so then I met with Steve to do my PhD. And uh, Steve is really an inspiration for me as well. He was the one that really showed that you could be a fantastic researcher, but also a inspirational and a fantastic teacher as well. He had a love of teaching and he loved teaching. And you could tell when, you, when we went to his classes, he loved teaching. He had so much patience for his students. He was really teaching like statistical mechanics, which is the worst part of chemistry to teach possible, right? But he made it interesting, engaging, because it's very mathematical. And a lot of chemists struggle with the math side of, of chemistry. But he taught it in such a way that was very easily digestible and understandable had a lot of patience with students that were really struggling. And I've tried to emulate that in, in how I approach my teaching as well, to try to understand where the students are finding difficulties and, and try to, to, to get to that point and then work through that. So he was very inspirational as well uh, for me to go through my career. And I always go, get in contact with, with him once or twice a year, still now just to see how he's doing and he checks up on me. He's always got a, an ear for his former students as well, which is really great when you're an early career academic to have that person that you can go to because it's very difficult. You get reviews back from your publications that you send out for peer review. And sometimes you've got no idea what, what the reviewer is trying to ask. And so to have someone to go to to 
talk things over is really, really important. So now you're someone who is a role model for your own students. Yeah. <laughs> so would you say you have any advice for them, your students who are interested in academia or pursuing a career in research? Yeah, I mean, you've got to study and research areas you are interested in. And it doesn't matter if that's not the, the latest trend or, I mean, there's so much research going now into to coronavirus and uh, obviously, and um, uh, the chemistry behind it and the chemistry of drug production and vaccines and the mRNA, all fascinating stuff. But if you're not particularly interested in it, you're never going to have a, a good career. So pick a topic that you're interested in and then it's vital that you, you try to get mentors that you can easily talk to because when you go for even for any job interview if you go to pursue an academia and you want a to get a particular phd supervisor if you don't have a great connection with them you're going to have a terrible time in your research career so advice i give to students going into industry that going for for interviews is that they're interviewing you, but you're, you're also interviewing them. You're seeing whether you can work with these people as well. Um, and even though there may be a great salary in the industry, or um, if you're not engaged with the people you're going to work with, you're not going to have a great time. Um, so it's, it's the, really the human aspect of research that is, and, and a career path that is key because you're going to be working for a long, long time. Uh, for like, that's why they say school is the best, best years of your life, because you don't have any of those struggles of paying bills, et cetera. And unfortunately, you're going to spend the next 50, 60 years um, working. And so you've got to pick something that you're interested in and hopefully work with people that you, you're engaged with and you, you can interact with well and you've got a good, um, good working relationship with them. You mentioned that if you're not interested in a particular field, you really shouldn't go into it because you'll be working in that field for 50, 60 Exactly, years. yes, yeah. And so this kind of goes into something that we like to ask our interviewees on our podcast. Here at ChemTalk, we want to improve the perception of chemistry. And mm. right now, we would say that there is a particular negative connotation associated with chemistry, saying it's harmful. Mm. chemistry is difficult so I wouldn't want to pursue this as my career have you as a professor right now have you experienced anything like that or have your students ever been so confused about a certain subject that they would say that they wouldn't want to pursue this in their future yeah so I I mean I I teach a lot in the in the first year of our university and I teach an intro chem course, which is, I think in the States, you call it a general chemistry. And I teach to huge classes, probably about 600 students a year in that, in that class. And the reason is, is because chemistry is vital for understanding a lot of the other sciences, the environmental, agricultural, uh, biosciences, biomedical sciences, earth sciences, and all the other physical sciences, you need a grounded in chemistry to understand really what's what's happening. And so 
unfortunately, it, it's it's difficult. It's not an easy subject to to grasp. Otherwise, everyone would do it. And I wouldn't teach to so many students in in general chemistry at, in in at the start of their university career. So there are ways of of really helping students. As I've said, you can use Johnstone's uh, triangle. And if you use that in your teaching, that really helps students understand and, and apply that then to the particular discipline that they're interested in. A lot of students don't realize how important chemistry will be in their, in their later career. And I, I see students around campus that I teach um, when they're in their second and third year. And I ask, um, have, do you use your chemistry now in, in your other disciplines? And all of them say yes. All of them say yes. Um, so it's vitally important. And it really helps in, in other disciplines and other, other studies. So yeah, there's there's the public perception of chemistry where, um, and I think you guys are doing a really great job at changing that viewpoint of how chemistry is perceived because you do see in marketing that they say if something's good for you, it must be chemical free. Now that's ridiculous because if it's chemical free, that means you've got a vacuum in, in there. there. There can't be anything in there. Water is a chemical and water is very good for us. And so changing that mindset that I uh, think chemistry is, uh, is fundamentally harmful, I think is vitally important. I think chemistry is going to be vital in reversing the impact of climate change. I think it's going to be vital in the development of renewable energy sources. Batteries is basically electrochemistry, which we need to understand and to understand the efficiency and how we get greater efficiency out of our materials that are used for solar panels is all involved in, in chemistry. And also there's organic chemistry in there because those uh, dyes that, that um, link certain aspects of the solar cell together are, are basic fundamental organic chemistry molecules. So yeah, it's, it is a, a tricky one, but I do think that um, chemistry will be vital in really helping our world develop in a better way and also try to reverse that climate change that, that's unfortunately coming. Right, and you even worked on the water molecule and environment during your time as a research assistant at Berkeley. Hmm. So we think that it's extremely vital to improve this connotation that chemistry has. And I mean, chemistry yeah. is all around us, so if- exactly. Honestly, like if we want to understand everything around us, we have to understand chemistry. And so yes. we think it's really important to make chemistry education more accessible to people around the world. Is there anything else that you want to ask us or tell our viewers? Oh, no, I think um, I mean, programs and podcasts like, such as this, I think is really, really important to keep chemistry in the public eye and to highlight the importance of it.
yeah, I think any student that is wishing to pursue a career in science needs a really fundamental understanding of chemistry. And they should try to challenge themselves if they want to do the harder subjects such as organic chemistry, really try to challenge yourself. And you may find that suddenly something clicks and then then you then you appreciate it more and you'll see it applied to different disciplines. So I congratulate you for putting on these podcasts. I think they're they're really fantastic. And uh, hopefully they'll continue in the future. Thank you so much. I want to thank you again for joining us today. We really appreciate you giving us your time. Absolute pleasure. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Spagnoli's work and check out the apps he developed, be sure to check the information in the show notes. Remember to follow ChemTalk on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok, or go to chemistrytalk.org for our new content. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. Thank you.